Hello, welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about the history of publicly available transportation, public spaces, the ways we get around, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. I'm your host, Cheryl Gross Glazer. In this episode of Altered Mobility, we are in the third in a three-part series about two first ladies who have influenced public spaces and transportation, and those would be Lady Bird Johnson and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. I do want to warn you, we will be discussing some matters in these three episodes, um, this one included, that could be upsetting or inappropriate for children or individuals uh, due to mentions of violence and discussions of uh, some close relationships, although not really in this particular episode on that latter one. Okay, uh, before we get into our topic, we will do our moment in equity. And uh, remember, we started in our first episode of this trilogy with housing segregation patterns. Uh, and then we moved on to Washington, D.C. and the building and staffing of the White House uh, by enslaved individuals. And now in episode three in our moment in equity, we're going to the dark days of New York City in the 1970s. Um, just as a little summary of that, in the mid-70s, uh, New York suffered from a severe financial crisis that threatened to bankrupt the city. Um, any of you who are around at that time may remember uh, that President Ford's first inclination was to be tough, and this was famously translated in probably the most famous daily news headline, um, which was Ford to City Drop Dead. Uh, foreign leaders and public opinion across the country convinced Ford not to forsake the city. Um, and this was a time of strikes, protests, terrible crime that was only increasing, um, and reaping really the terrible consequences of decades of underinvestment in city infrastructure. Okay, so we have uh, city workers. Uh, city workers were affected, and many were first-generation middle-class people. They thought they had secure jobs. They thought they had good benefits. Um, many of these people were black or Latino. Um, they, many of them had even suffered discrimination in their jobs while they were working. And with the financial crisis in New York, they're placed between a rock and a hard place. And I'll say this, with the coming of the Reagan years, they are already being demonized uh, as responsible for a crisis that they did not produce, um, these union members particularly. So I'm going to read to you a little something from Welcome to Fear City, the inside story of New York's Civil War 40 years on, uh, which appeared in The Guardian in 2015 by Kevin Baker. And I... Um, I'll quote, initially, municipal unions were not in a giving vein. Their members had borne the brunt of the social chaos over the past 10 years. Workers in public hospitals had dealt with hundreds of thousands of heroin junkies. Subway workers had got their deteriorating antique trains back out on the rails every day, 24 hours a day. 
Police had engaged in almost open warfare with the Black Panthers and other would-be revolutionaries. Firefighters rushed to thousands of false alarms and were repeatedly bombarded with bricks and garbage or even shot at while they tried to keep the city from burning. The city would not go bankrupt, but years of austerity and cutbacks still lay ahead many of them imposed on the same men and women whose sacrifices had just rescued the city. Those city workers who kept their jobs generally lost their cost of living raises at a time when inflation reached 16 to 18 percent. The New York uh, Police Department shrank from more than 42,000 police officers to less than 27,000 by 1990, which was the same year that murders in New York reached a record high of 2,245. The bitterness lingered as well. When a blackout set off a riot of looting and mayhem in the summer of 1977, some 10,000 cops, 40% of the off-duty force, ignored orders to report for duty. Municipal workers' wages and pensions never recovered, claimed Robert Fitch in his 1993 history, The Assassination of New York. At the same time, he noted, the fiscal crisis proved to be a great boom to New York's elite as the city got rid of the stock exchange tax, halved the personal income tax, and set the real estate tax at a record low, end quote. Who would think? Does that stuff really get to you? We have these workers demonized more and more. They're made to suffer for problems they never set in motion. And then the wealthy people just keep on going. All right. But we're moving on. We're beginning episode three, the final one in this three-part series about first ladies, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and Lady Bird Johnson. We are in the tumultuous, violent years of the late 60s, and then we're going to venture during this episode in through the mid-70s. So we left off the last episode uh, with landscape architect Lawrence Halprin. He had planned the popular early adaptive reuse of Giradelli Square in San Francisco, and Lady Purd approves of him uh, to participate with her and uh, engage him for an initial plan for Washington, D.C. She's relying on $100,000 in promised funding from Stephen Currier, whose wife had inherited much of the Mellon family money. So let's talk about Larry Halprin for a minute because he's going to be kind of Lady Bird's right-hand man there. He's a star landscape architect, kind of in his field. He's very well known. Courier picks him out. Uh, Halprin had grown up in Brooklyn. His mom had taken him on Saturday morning shopping trips at department stores and for trips to the Met, the Metropolitan uh, Museum of Art. I can very much relate to those kind of outings on Saturdays in New York. Uh, but Halpern's parents did something unusual for a child, someone who's um, growing up in the Depression. They... they support his artistic talent instead of telling him get you know get a real job they're supporting him in in this endeavor 
After high school, Halpern also does something unusual. Instead of going straight to work or to college, he spends three years living in Israel, and this is before it became a state. And then he goes to college. He attends Cornell, which was a pretty common destination for um, kids who live in Brooklyn and they are from more a little more well-to-do parents at this time. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's that generation. She also goes to Cornell. He then earns a second bachelor's degree from Harvard. He served in the U.S. Army during World War II. And then he earns a master's degree at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So Halpern, who is this Jewish kid from Brooklyn, has by his mid-twenties lived in um, quite a different number of places, meets up with quite different types of people. He's in a range, broad range of built and unbuilt environments. Okay, taking a sip of water because it's too late in the day for my Zeke's coffee. Okay, I'm sorry about that. I hope the energy level is, you know, where it should be. Okay, so by 1966, Halpern is a star. He's at the forefront of the design of that first uh, American Urban Adaptive Reuse Project uh, and wildly successful Girardelli Square in San Francisco, the refashioning of a chocolate factory building and grounds. After that, uh, he's a name, and I'll just mention a few of the projects that he is uh, well known for doing. He designed Skyline Park in Denver, the University of California at Santa Cruz, Ira Keller Fountain Park in Portland, Oregon, Greenwood Common in Berkeley, California, Hebrew University and Haas Promenade in Jerusalem, uh, the pedestrian approach to Yosemite National Park, Stern Grove in San Francisco, and the FDR Memorial in Washington, D.C. So we could do an episode just on this guy. Um, and if you've seen the best of his work, or what was my what's my opinion of the best of his work, he's really a genius at path design and framing of vistas. Really wonderful at that. And he's done interesting fountains in the middle of cities, particularly Fountain Park in Portland. So Halpern's only a few years younger than Lady Bird. Let me make sure I'm still recording here. Yep. Um, but unlike her, he's particularly, he's very well traveled outside the U.S. He's in demand. So Lady Bird flies out to California. Uh, she's going to dedicate a national seashore and she's going to campaign uh, for the incumbent de Democratic governor of California who happened to be running against none other than Ronald Reagan. And she's taken to Girardelli Square. What do you think? While she's in San Francisco, just to show what the times were and um, what the situation was for her wherever she went, uh, there's days of race riots stemming from a police shooting of a 16-year-old suspect. There's anti-Vietnam War protesters heckling her wherever she goes. Um, as an aside, Reagan wins that uh, gubernatorial, ah, gubernatorial election, but Brown's son, um, the, the Governor Brown's son, Jerry Brown, later served himself 
four terms as governor. So uh, what also sets Halperin kind of apart, and I would say ahead of his time, is his dedication to community engagement on its projects. Nothing, something that's at all required at the time. Lady Bird also at this point, she really wants to be taken seriously. She wants to be involved in projects, you know, kind of a step above or step beyond, I would say, flower planting projects of wealthy white ladies. And she's up, she's up for collaborating with Halperin. So after this little meeting, uh, or not meeting, after this little tour of, uh, for Lady Bird out in California, she agrees to meet Halperin. Uh, he travels to D.C. to meet with her and her staff, and he's taken around uh, to different neighborhoods. He sees the housing conditions, the lack of play space and public spaces in Washington. Uh, beyond, we're talking about beyond tourist D.C. They visit vacant lots, um, and Lady Bird is asking for spaces, you know, she's asking, going to ask him for spaces that are usable by, and I quote from the book Lady Bird Johnson in the Environment, lots and lots of people. It should be fun, and its maintenance should be easy, because any project we sponsor will be a stepchild of the city, end quote. There's a few political realities here uh, at work at the close of 1966. There's disappearing interest and funding. The secret that she knows that LBJ is unlikely to run for a second term, so she knows her time in D.C. is more limited than other people think it is. And there's an assumption that whatever improvements are made or additions completed in these impoverished and disenfranchised, disenfranchised neighborhoods, um, those black people are going to continue to live there and they're going to have to figure out how to maintain these projects. Um, because Lady Bird is assuming that funds for maintenance will be limited at best. And then there's something else we should consider now with 2020 hindsight, which is that gentrification is not on the radar at all because at this point people are still fleeing to the suburbs. So nobody's thinking, oh, we'll improve the neighborhood and then rich people will come in and take, take the housing stock away. Okay, so Halpern and Ladybird find common ground in their skepticism of unlimited highway building and expansion, which was in full swing in the late 60s. They both saw the, the value of beauty, whether in neighborhoods or in larger public spaces or in spots of natural beauty. And this is not to say, however, that either of them were adversaries of the highway or of car culture, walkability, bike lanes, complete streets, etc. These are all in the future for European cities and certainly way far in the future for U.S. activists and city staffs, you know, with very pretty limited exceptions. Halpern later says of Lady Bird, and I'm quoting from the book Hiding in Plain Sight, I was astounded by the First Lady's interests and energy, and particularly by her wide-ranging concern for civil rights. So Halpern's ambition matches Lady Bird's and her staff, and he decides right off the bat 
not to address the tourist spaces of Washington, D.C., because the National Park Service is already doing that, and there's no lack of political support uh, for these spaces. And and there's funding, you know, more or less. Uh, Halpern takes advantage of a study that a neighborhood group uh, did that documented the recreational infrastructure that existed and was possible in capital in DC's Capitol Hill neighborhoods. They considered playgrounds, vacant triangles, squares, and famous circles in DC. Um, think of all those DC diagonal avenues named after each state in the Union. Um, he meets with a racially and socioeconomically diverse group in the area, and he and Lady Bird eye the Anacostia Waterfront, which borders the area. So Halpern operates well in the climate of D.C. He meets with official stakeholders in the federal government, including the National Parks Service and the Department of the Interior. Um, with staff in the D.C. government, with local residents, all while attempting to build support and funding for an eventual plan and projects. Uh, The funding piece was critical, as Stephen Currier at this point remains the sole big donor, and we can't expect him to pay for all of this. Now remember also that at this time, for the District of Columbia, there is no home rule Indeed, at this time, there's no guarantee of home rule. Congress uh, governs D.C., which it still does, with its um, population exceeding that of quite a few states. It has no senators to this day, no voting members of Congress. Um, And despite many decades of advocacy, D.C. is not a state. So uh, in the 1960s, we have a block of conservative Southern Democrats, later becoming Republicans, opposing home rule, and it's LBJ who does uh, push for home rule, the home rule that D.C. has now incomplete as it is. But at this moment that um, we're talking about, there's no home rule at this point, so they can't piss off Congress too much, to put it bluntly. Uh, The books Hiding in Plain Sight and Lady Bird in the Environment discuss Halpern's initial plan. Uh, though he had compliment, uh, I am just okay. I really need that coffee. Okay, ah, though Halpern had contemplated improvements in the Shaw neighborhood, uh, and the Shaw neighborhood is not too far from DC's convention center. I'll just say that, just for those of you who aren't here, we don't we don't have to get too exact. Um, he contemplated, you know, like uh, a park in the interior of a block. But Shaw already has some funding and attention, so Halpern Cap does concentrate on those Capitol Hill neighborhoods, particularly in Southeast. And remember, there's four quadrants, Southeast, Northeast, etc. Uh, he imagines populating block interiors in Northeast and Southeast, um, not far from the Capitol and Union Station, with play spaces and vest pocket parks. He wants school playgrounds and community centers. And for the Anacostia River, he envisions a parkway along the river similar to Rock Creek Parkway and Park, which borders wealthy neighborhoods and middle-class neighborhoods in northwest D.C. For Kingman Island, an island in the middle of the Anacostia, King uh, Halpern is envisioning a park, a waterfront pool, and a recreation complex. 
When he eyes the Anacostia waterfront, at that time it's undeveloped, but it's not pretty. There's lots of garbage and debris, um, though there's plenty of possibilities. You know, if one were to to do a project, there's plenty of possibilities for enjoying nature and recreation. Um, and quoting from the History of Kingman and Heritage Islands, part of a D.C. government website about the islands, uh, taking you back a little, and I quote, In 1934, all parkland in the district formerly managed, formerly <laughs> managed by the Corps of Engineers was transferred to the National Park Service. In 1946, the last pair of bald eagles on the Anacostia River abandoned their nest on Kingman Island. The bald eagle did not return until transplanted eaglets returned to the river as adults in 2004. End quote. In fact, control over the islands didn't rest in the D.C. government until 1996. So you can imagine how bad it was if at this point it's it's been 20 years since any bald eagles have come there. So it's really at the, the low point. Halpern's plan included swimming lakes in Kingman Lake, which uh, is between RFK Stadium and the Anacostia River. He envisioned beaches, amusements, picnic areas, and facilities for cultural offerings. So it sound, kind of sounds like 1960s culture with conservation and cleanup mixed in. So in January of 1967, Halpern formally, formally, instead of not formerly, <laughs> a little tongue twister there, he formally presents his plan at the White House to these official stakeholders and possible funders. Lady Bird is very much involved in the presentation and planning of this event. She anticipates objections. She knows who's going to step up. And though D.C. was at the time a majority black city, indeed nicknamed Chocolate City, no African Americans were at this meeting. Walter Washington, who had been, you know, one of her right-hand people, was still working in New York at the time. He later becomes the first um, mayor of Washington, D.C., um, or the first mayor of ho this home rule period to come. Halperin uh, immediately prepares after this event. It goes so well, he immediately prepares an itemized bid for what will be the initial phase of a larger plan, right? He does this initial plan, and now he's going to go more in detail. It's a larger plan. Everything looks great. Halperin has earned his first chunk of that $100,000 in Courier's money, and he's proposing work for the next chunk. All looks good in January of 1967. And I'm going to take another sip of water here because I want you to pause. I want you to appreciate this pause right now. There's a giant butt, B-U-T, coming up. Only four days after this White House gathering, on the same day that Halpern sends his bid in, Stephen Currier uh, and his wife have difficulties flying to meet their youngest child, who is only six years old. And this little boy is waiting for them after vacationing with family friends. 
The three were set to enjoy a nice holiday cruise with their very well, the very wealthy parents here. The two older girls, nine and ten years old at the time, were in school in Manhattan. And being fabulously wealthy, uh, the couple charters a private jet, and they're going to be traveling from Puerto Rico to St. Thomas. Unfortunately and tragically, the plane never arrived, and Courier and his wife and the pilot are never found. Uh, a couple who had their own children, they were friends of the Couriers, uh, raised the Courier children. According to one of the daughters, none of the relatives stepped up. And I went down a deep rabbit hole on this one, and it really didn't seem like the kids were very tied to extended family after this, which is so sad. Okay, so here we have the major funder gone, the major supporter and booster, right? As kind of like this anchor person to get more funders, gone. The Capitol Hill neighborhoods, with their active local participation, would gentrify, I hope I said that right, gentrify within a generation, and uh, eventually becoming really unaffordable to most in the middle class, um, and, and also becoming much wider. Uh, other, other neighborhoods would wait an, another generation before following that trajectory. Uh, the death of Currier and his wife greatly affected tens of thousands of people also who lived beyond the river. Ambitions for the Anacostia waterfront would lie dormant for two generations, uh, with rumblings about plans now and then. We'll get into that a little much later in the episode in an epilogue. Anacostia to this day remains the poorest area of D.C., with a much higher percentage of D.C.-born residents and African Americans than other D.C. areas. And there are stark disparities, even there, between the incomes of whites and blacks. Ladies Bird's sponsorship continues after Curry's death, but, but even this dissipates with the lack of money and the disappearance of her champion. Halpern, of course, moves on because he works for money. He's not a volunteer. Um, and as for Lady Bird's ideas, as, as worked out by Larry Halpern, um, 1975 sees a less ambitious version of Halpern's plan that would have created a national children's island. Uh, this park would have been inclusive for all ability levels for children uh, with disabilities, as well as um, people of all ages and the el elderly, but funding never materialized, and that plan, which had blossomed in anticipation of the bicentennial in 1976, faded from the local news after 1977, when hope sprang up the children's activities on the island would spur interest. Um, and quell uh, bureaucratic lethargy and the egos around. But okay, by 1967, it's private donors, not government dollars. Uh, and everybody knows that's not sustainable. Though they're doing what they can. We're talking about the likes of Mary Lasker, Brooke Astor, Lawrence Rockefeller. So we're talking about big bucks. Um, Lasker especially donated significant money for the cherry trees at Haynes Point in D.C., which are gorgeous to this day. And just as a little aside, when I worked for the Interior Department, um, I always tried to have a reason to visit 
the National Park Service office uh, at Haynes Point at, you know, when the cherry blossoms were in bloom. I really need an in-person meeting there. <laughs> um, so, uh, Lasker also spent quite a bit of money for daffodil daffodil bulbs to be planted in Rock Creek Park. And I have to say, I always notice those blooming after the crocuses. Um, but, you know, those aren't the same kind of neighborhoods that, that Lady Bird and Halpern had been discussing, you know. So it's 1967, and we're getting into 1968, and... The murder of Martin Luther King takes place in early April, and there is rioting across the country uh, that spring. LBJ then declares he won't run for another term. And then uh, about two months after uh, Martin Luther King is assassinated, we have the assassination of Democratic frontrunner for the 1968 election. Uh, Robert Kennedy uh, is killed in early June. And so we now have a completely different country in mid-1968 than Kennedy had ever dealt with when he was president. And so we have a very different reception uh, for Lady Bird than we had for Jackie Kennedy when she was first lady. The concerns of the voting public, their fears, their sympathies, sympathies, their hopes, um, have all changed dramatically, and there's much more division in the country. So consequently, what was politically possible in 1964 and 1965 is no longer possible. Assassinations, rioting, Vietnam War protests have poisoned LBJ's connection with the American people. And the unifying, magnetic, charismatic force of Bobby Kennedy is gone. And it's, it's almost like the, the balloon, the air has been let out. You know, between the assassination of uh, MLK and RFK, it's like nobody can take anymore. And Lady Bird has to deal with the venom of unpopularity, uh, within her husband's own political party, let alone everywhere else, that Jackie never has to confront the unfriendly protesters I, that I've already talked about, um, heckling and animosity. So Julia Swig in Hiding in Plain Sight, she makes the point that even without the death of the fabulously wealthy Stephen Currier and his wife, Halpern and Lady Bird's plan might well have been doomed anyway, or at least uh, might well have faced difficulties, because there's an accelerated timeline, you know, with, with Lady Bird leaving um, soon, would they have even have been able to get this project off the ground and completed? Um, and once again, for Lady Bird, a, an untimely death changes her life. And, and, um, and her work in her life. First, we had her mother's passing when she's five. I think she's five or six. Um, then JFK's assassination catapults her in a very different direction than she had anticipated. And now this, you know, a big, big project uh, is gone. Um, I'm going to finish with Lady Bird's time in the White House with... Uh, 
a small project that she's she's uh, involved with and lends her name to in Washington, D.C. And it really shows that she's willing to be associated with smaller projects, um, you know, in neighborhoods far outside of official Washington, D.C. And we're going to the Mount Pleasant neighborhood of D.C., several, uh, actually just a few stops up really from downtown. Uh, we're on Hobart Place between Georgia Avenue and Sherman Avenue. And on that small street lies twin tiny parks in the middle of a residential street of small attached townhouses. If one walks there today, you can see people walking to the metro. There's buses. There's children walking to school. Plenty of dog walking. It's quiet. It's ethnically diverse um, and socioeconomically diverse, which is uh, rare for a D.C. neighborhood. There is gentrification here, um, as it has affected many formerly affordable neighborhoods and rent and real estate prices are high. But this was not always, always the case. The 1968 riots were very close by in the uh, wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King in April. Um, and the concern in the mid to late 60s, again, was the loss of the middle class and their tax dollars, um, rather than housing being too expensive, right? S nobody had in mind anything like Airbnb either, taking rental properties off the market or people buying condos just as an investment. Um, and, and I will quote from a Krieger Museum uh, website. In 1968, Carmen and David Krieger attended the dedication of the Hobart Place Community Parks, now called Hobart Twin Parks, with Washington Mayor Walter E. Washington and Lady Bird Johnson. These two, quote, unquote, pocket parks are laid, located on either side of Hobart Place Northwest near the intersection with Georgia Avenue. Responding to requests from the Hobart Place Book Club, Lady Bird Johnson, wife of President Lyndon B. Johnson, included the Hobart Place parks in her campaign to beautify Washington. Carmen and David Krieger supported her effort to improve green spaces around the city and provided the funding to restore these two parks, end quote. And from Parkview, D.C., Hobart Place Parks getting refurbished, I quote, a quick check from the 1913 edition of Base Real Estate Atlas of Surveys of Washington, District of Columbia, shows that the parks date back to Henry Wardman's original development of this section of Hobart Street in 1912. Wardman also built the houses on the south side of Columbia Road and the north side of Harvard Street, and they give addresses, a major um, redevelopment in 1968. During that construction, Mr. and Mrs. David L. Krieger donated $36,500 to help create one park for children and one park 
for adults, end quote. And let me describe these twin pocket parks. They are directly across the street from each other. They're very small, you know, really the width of one of these townhouses and the depth of the property of one of these townhouses. It's not big. If you're sitting in the adult park, you could see the kids in the kiddie park. And this is very 1960s. It really reminds me of the parks I had in my Brooklyn co-op growing up where you have the adult section separate from the kid park. And so the adults could see you, but they weren't right there at a time when parents didn't necessarily feel the need to be like right next to their kids. So it kind of evokes that ethos. Um, it's very shady. So even in the summer, the adult park is a... Re really nice place to sit and the kitty park is a nice place to play i could see uh gatherings here so in january of 1970 uh lady bird moves out of the white house she and her husband move back to texas she remains quite active in conservation efforts she's famous but she recedes from public view um the resuscitation of her reputation from wallflower to activist and journalist of history um, in the public mind it perc that percolates between beneath the surface uh, for quite a long time only being fully acknowledged with the coming of Julius Weig's book the re and that recounts the White House years her, her wonderful book hiding in plain sight there's other things this Lawrence Gould book uh, Lady Bird and the Environment uh, didn't get quite as much play, I don't think. Uh, Lady Bird's work to protect and enhance the enjoyment of the Anacostia will wait, as I said, lying dormant for a long time. So we're going to transition to Jackie. I'm going to take another sip of water here, if I can get it. Okay, so in these years that we've spent with Jack, with Lady Bird, uh, Jackie never leaves the public eye. She's kind of the Princess Diana of her time. The press and the American public remain forever enchanted with Jackie. She, on the other hand, wants a private life with her children, family, and friends. After being